Welcome to our Painesville Assembly of God podcast. Our desire is to connect people to a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. If this message touches your heart, we'd love to hear about it. Email us at info at or visit PainesvilleAG.com. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to your faith. Praise the Lord. Well, God is good, isn't he? <laughs> you know, people aren't shocked much anymore. In fact, uh, it was a, a federal law enforcement officer that said that after 30 years of law enforcement experience, he made that bold statement. People aren't shocked much anymore. And uh, how we respond to certain situations, certain things that, uh, that, that, that ought to impact us, those kinds of, 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 of things really uh, says a lot about us. In fact, let me ask you a question. What causes you to cringe? What types of situations move you? Or motivate you. The problem of this idea of shock is highlighted uh, in a book by Alvin Toffler that, that he wrote years back called Future Shock. And, and in it, he coined the popular phrase that we now use over and over again, information overload. How many have ever heard of that? Information overload. Or I like the term that he uses, infobesity. Infobesity. And what he's talking about is the fact that we live in a day and age where there is more information than ever before that is constantly thrown at us. We're in a world today where between what you see on the news media and television, what you see on social media, YouTube, TikTok, and all of these kinds of, you got live video and, and things coming at you and images coming at you that things that used to shock us don't anymore. Uh, you know, I mean, how many starving babies can you see before you finally look and go, oh, there it is again? H- how many mass shootings does it take before we finally find ourselves going, oh, another one, what's going on in this world? When initially, those kind of events shocked us. What, what, what has happened to the shock value? It's simply not there, and you can only see so many times before emotionally you begin to, to build up kind of a, a callousness towards it. Information overload leads to emotion overload, which leads to not feeling shock over things that ought to get our attention. See, Daniel, we're going to look in Daniel chapter 8, he had a vision. And at the end of the vision that Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 8, it left him wrecked, shocked. It, it left him literally just having to try to figure out what does this all mean. It shocked him. You see, in Daniel chapter 2, as we looked at several weeks back, God had revealed a future vision to Daniel. And last week, Daniel chapter 7, we saw another vision of the same things. And, and in those visions of chapter 2, there was a statue. And, and in chapter 7, it was the image of different animals, that different animal combinations, different beasts. And those represented different kingdoms. They were future to Daniel and Babylon. They were future of what God was going to do and different kingdoms that were going to take over. As we talked about the Babylonian kingdom, the head of gold and the first beast, the lion's head, uh, coupled then followed by the Medo-Persian empire, followed by the Greek empire, followed by the Roman empire, and, and, and on and on. And then a resurgence that, that we've seen a little bit mentioned about an upcoming, some kind of a resurgence of a Roman empire. But today, Daniel's going to have a vision, and that vision is going to focus mainly on 
two of those kingdoms. But not just two of those kingdoms, but also future of of what is to come. So today, if you like prophecy and if you like history, then this is for you. Because there's a lot of prophecy and history that we're going to look at today. And it's amazing when we take a look at this prophecy in the book of Daniel, how much of this prophecy, how much of this vision has already been fulfilled historically in great detail. And so I I want to encourage you to stick with me today because we're going to go through some history today. We're going to connect some dots today. We're going to look at some things, but not only has this been something that's been fulfilled historically, but also there's an element of this that has yet to be fulfilled. And so we're going to get into it. We're going to look into it. So we're going to be mainly in Daniel chapter 8 today. And if you remember from last week, Daniel's chapter 1 through 6 are kind of in a chronological sequential order. They start with the the, the children of, or, or the, the, the Israelite exiles and, and Babylon coming into Jerusalem and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and its stories of their time as exiles in Babylon and then eventually the Medo-Persian Empire with Darius and then that kind of stops. And as we talked about last week, the vision of last week happened in the first year of one of the Babylonian kings by the name of Belshazzar. And so we said that 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 happened, Belshazzar's reign ended at the end of Daniel chapter 5. So previously, before Daniel chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar is still there, and Daniel chapter 5, that first vision took place. Now in Daniel chapter 8, we're going to see once again that, that this vision takes place in the third year of Belshazzar's reign. Let's take a look at it. Daniel chapter 8, starting in verse 1 and 2. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after one that had already appeared to me. And in my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. And in the vision, I was beside the Uli Canal. So let me pause for a moment because now last week we were the first year of Belshazzar. Now we're the third year. So Babylon is still in control. At this point, Babylon is still in control. When Daniel has the vision he's about to have, this is the time before the Medo-Persian Empire has even happened yet, Daniel is, is now seeing this vision. So much of what Daniel is going to see here is, is prophetic. Secondly, it's important to note that Daniel sees himself in the citadel of Susa. And if you, if you, or, or Shushan uh, might be another interpretation, but Susa, if you remember anything about Susa, Susa ended up being the capital of the Medo-Persian Empire. It was about 230 miles east of Babylon on the outer edges of where the Babylonian Empire was. And Susa was the place where we find Queen Esther in the Bible. Susa is also the place where Nehemiah began to get the vision and left from there to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And later on, it was the place of the Code of Hammurabi, if you know anything about history. So, so Susa is a very important place. And so I just want to give some backdrop so that we understand. Now, what does Daniel see? Again, Daniel gets visions of the animal kingdom. There's a lot of things with animals. We, are, we live in a, a day and age where there is a lot of animation. And so for us, it's easy for us to envision these things. But you have to remember that in Daniel's time, there was not animated. There was no Disney. There was not animated features. Daniel is seeing these visions and seeing this animation. So let's take a look at what he sees. Verse 3. I looked up and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal. 
and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west, towards the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased, and it became great. What is this first animal that Daniel sees? What is this ram with two horns? What does it represent? Well, later on in the chapter, I'll just give it away. We'll just read ahead. Daniel asks about the interpretation, and God sends an angel by the name of Gabriel. I just love Gabriel. Seems to be the information guy who comes and and announces things, and God's kind of information uh, angel. I don't know what it is here. But Gabriel comes, and Gabriel tells us what this is, tells us what Daniel sees. Verse 20, the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. Two horns, Media and Persia. Remember, When Daniel is seeing this vision, it said it's in the third year of whose reign? Belshazzar. Belshazzar was still reigning. Babylon was still the kingdom. This is prophecy. This has yet to be fulfilled. And yet here it is. And history tells us that's exactly what happened. In fact, history tells us that the Medes started up and they joined with the Persians and they took over. But guess what happened? Who was the first king, the, the, the king that happened, Cyrus, and every king after that was a what? A Persian king. So two horns, but one of those horns grew longer because the Persian empire began to take over and take more prominence in leadership than the Medes did. That's history. But here it was ahead of time, prophecy. Woo, isn't that good? And then he sees another animal, all right? So, so Daniel chapter five or 8, verse 5, as I was thinking about this, so I'm thinking about the ram, as I'm thinking about this, a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. And it came toward the two-horned ram, and I had, uh, I had seen standing beside the canal, and it charged at it with great rage. And I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. And the ram was powerless to stand against it. And the goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it. And none could rescue from rescue the ram from its power. So let me just say for a moment, before we dive into the goat, once again, Daniel is writing this during the time of the Babylonian empire, but what we are going to see in this next section is incredibly incredible, even more so than the two horns, incredible great detail that is fulfilled in history. It's, it's, it's incredible. He was writing this prophecy about 200 years before these events took place. So who does the goat represent? Well, once again, let's go down later in Daniel chapter 8 and allow Gabriel just to tell us. The goat, verse 21, the shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. So the goat represents the Greek empire, and, and who was the first king of the Greek empire? Who was the first leader? Alexander the Great. So the horn represents Alexander the Great, and the goat represents the Greek empire, and we know that the Greek empire succeeded the Medo-Persian empire, and they, they conquered them, and, and the horn, again, represents Alexander the Great, the king of Philip of Macedon, and notice the vision says the goat came from the west, crossed the whole earth without touching the ground. You know what that, what this highlights? The speed at which Alexander the Great conquered the, the known world at that time, in which he had conquered 
Babylon, conquered other surrounding areas, and he came from the west. He conquered Egypt first, and he came from the west. So, so again, ahead of time, Daniel is seeing this vision, and it's fulfilled just as he had said, where you have this, this goat of a nation. And if you know anything about Greek history, there's a lot of goat image in there. There's a lot with the goat. There's a lot of things where you see a lot of, a lot of stuff with the goat. Goat image, not greatest of all time, but close. But it came with great speed and conquered the known world faster than any kingdom had. But that's not where the details end. Let's take a look at the next verse. This is really good. We're just going through it. Verse 8. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. You're like, Pastor, what, what, what was so intriguing about this? Anybody know what happened to Alexander the Great? At age 33, he died suddenly. He was partying and drinking and celebrating and grieving over the fact that there were no more worlds to conquer. And people believe, history or, or, you know, things believe that they don't know how he died, but he died very suddenly at the age of 33 and, and could have been poisoned by, by somebody putting a little something in his drink as he was doing it. Nevertheless, at age 33, he conquered the world with great speed and, and then, boom, at age 33, the horn was broken off. And how was the kingdom divided among his four generals? This was written during the time, 200 years before, during the time when Daniel was during the Babylonian reign. And yet, with such great detail, we see these things played out in history. Maybe I'm getting more excited than everybody else is. I just love this. I mean, this is just awesome. It's just awesome. In fact, Daniel 8.22 says this, the four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represented four kingdoms that will emerge from this nation but will not have the same power. So again, following his death, his four four parts of his kingdom were divided among four generals. Cassander ruled Macedonia. Lysimachus, I don't know how to say that. I think that's how you say it. Lysimachus, I don't know. Conquered Thrace and most of Asia Minor. And then Seleucus took Syria and Ptolemy became king of Egypt in Palestine. And, 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 and this is just great detail. I mean, this is just amazing. In fact, uh, Rodney, pastor, scholar and pastor Rodney Stortz explains it this way. I love it. He says, it is important to understand that Alexander's rise to power was two centuries after Daniel made this prophecy. And there'd be no way a human could predict this. In fact, these prophecies are so accurate, he says, that liberal scholars, those who do not believe the Bible is God's holy and inerrant word, suggest that Daniel must have written this book in the first century before Christ. For them, it's the only explanation for the accuracy of Daniel. They, they do not believe this is prophecy. They think it's recorded history because it's so accurate. There's no other way to explain it. How can we explain? How can such great detail happen? There, that, that can't be. That, 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 the Bible can't be that accurate in God's holy word. Somebody else must have written it, put Daniel's name on it. They had to write it after it happened. It couldn't be. But no, this was written 200 years before with great accuracy and great fulfillment. That's God's word. That's why you can trust God's word. Because God's word is accurate. God's word is accurate. And we know that 
that as we move through this, that, that we see this prophecy being fulfilled in great detail just demonstrates again the power and the truth of God's word. It also demonstrates, friends, that throughout history, God is in control and we're a part of his plan. God is in control over every kingdom that comes and every kingdom that goes and who's in power and who's not in power and what happens. Guess what? There is an author that is writing the story. God is writing the story. Oh, he has a plan. Dr. David Jeremiah wrote in his book, Agents of Babylon, while it seems on the surface that Alexander was simply fulfilling his own dreams of conquest, in reality, he was playing a role in God's prophetic plan for Gentile kings. It is so good. You see, what was it so important? What did Alexander bring? Why would God utilize Alexander? Remember, when Alexander came in this period of time, this was in that 400-year time period at the end of the prophets, at the end of the, the Old Testament prophets and the beginning of when Jesus had come. This is that 400-year period of time that we're going to look at in history. Why was this time so important? What was God up to? Well, let me tell you what God was up to. The Greeks strategically brought civilization and a universal language to the Mediterranean world. A few centuries later, as the New Testament is being written, most of it is being written in this language, Greek, which the entire area at that time had, had been able to understand. So it brought a commonality of language to the known world, allowing for the New Testament and the gospel about Jesus Christ to be able to be written and shared. That was God's plan. That was God's plan. And we know what happened later, the Romans, right? God, why would you bring the Romans? What did the Romans do? Well, the Romans brought universal peace to that area that you could move about in various areas in a place of peace. Not only that, but they brought paved roads. The Roman roads were there. And so you have all of these things strategic. And that's why Paul writes under the influence of the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. God was arranging and organizing and utilizing the powers of that day, the people of that day, the nations and the conquerors of that day to prepare the way for the message of his son. Woo! Thank you, Jesus, right? Well, let's look, shift to the next part of the vision. Fulfillment later on uh, of, of what happened in this history. Out of one of them came another horn which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and the beautiful land. And it grew until it reached the hosts of heavens and it threw stones of the some, or excuse me, it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. And it set itself up to be great as the commander of the army of the Lord. And it took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord. And his sanctuary was thrown down because the rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. And it prospered in everything it did. And truth was thrown to the ground. What does this mean? What is this part of the prophecy? What, what does this have to do with? Well, this part of the prophecy is both historical in fulfillment, but in future in terms of prophecy. It has both. 
it has both a historical fulfillment that we're going to talk about. But as we get into who Gabriel says it is, and as we get into some other parts of Scripture, we're going to find that not only was this part of the vision fulfilled historically, but also that historical vision was a shadow of what is coming. A shadow of one who is coming. So following Alexander's death, we mentioned that the kingdom was given to his four generals. It was split into four parts of the kingdom. And, and two of those parts were given. One to the name, a kingdom to, to a guy by the name of Seleucus. And, uh, and his portion was in the area of Syria, the kingdom of Syria. And then Ptolemy was another. His portion uh, was, the, was the area of Egypt. And these two generals became bitter enemies. History tells us they became bitter enemies and they, they fought against each other and had a long-standing controversy between the two dynasties, Syria to the north of Palestine and Palestine and Egypt to the south. They fought back and forth. There was a, a, a battlefield in between for a long period of time or who was in control and, and, and Seleucus and, 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 and his reign, the kings that came after him, he, he was losing a lot of battles and so his territory was getting smaller and smaller until the eighth of his kingdom, the eighth in his dynasty, eighth king of the Seleucids in his dynasty was by the, a, name, a man by the name of Antiochus, and as he called himself, Epiphanes. Antiochus or Antiochus Epiphanes, and his capital city was named Antioch, the place later in the New Testament where they were first called Christians, according to the book of Acts, chapter 11, verse 26. By the time Antiochus IV took the throne in 175 BC. Again, his kingdom was greatly reduced in size. So he's this small horn, started small, Daniel 8 verse 9, but he soon rose to great power. He conquered Egypt to the south. So remember, the, the prophecy talked about to the south. He trampled to the south uh, and, and then to the east. And we see the next part that he conquered was Persia to the east. So he began to take over Persia. And then scripture says the, the beautiful land in the NIV or other translations say the glorious land. And does anybody know what that represents? That is Jerusalem. So he took over Egypt to the south. There was that great battle. He started small. He took over Egypt. Then he went east and he conquered Persia and then after that he set his sights on the beautiful land, the glorious land Jerusalem this man Antiochus IV as I said gave himself the name Epiphanes which means God manifest or I am God manifest most glorious he's a picture of the Antichrist he is Christ of another I am God manifest I am God great. This is the name he gave himself. Now, the Jews like to, to make fun of this. They like to make a play on, on that title he gave himself. And so they would call him uh, Antiochus Epimenes, Epimenes, not Epiphanes, Epimenes, which means madman. Antiochus the madman. At a madman, he was. In fact, on one occasion, he set his sights to attack Jerusalem, and he hated the Jewish people. And on one occasion, uh, he, he killed, he, he sold 40,000 of them as slaves and killed 80,000 of the Jews in battle in one day. In one day. He was, 
He was, he was far worse than Hitler. He, he set his sights. He hated God's people. He hated the Jews. In fact, history tells us that he hated the Jews because of their worship of God. And, and he set his sights on the temple in Jerusalem, in particular the place of worship. And he tried to order them not to sacrifice anymore. And he tried to order them not to worship their God anymore and not to sacrifice. But they would not do it. And so he came in and, 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 and he defied the high priest at the time in Jerusalem. He defied the high priest who was trying to keep him out and telling him no. And he defied and he came into the sacred temple. And Daniel chapter 8 verse 11 says he beca- it became great. It, meaning Antiochus, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. It is representing that little horn, representing that horn, Antiochus, and the prince of hosts represents the high priest in there, and Antiochus erected a pagan altar in the temple in Jerusalem, desecrating the temple in Jerusalem. He erected this altar, and then he he sacrificed a pig, a sow, on the altar, and then he took the the blood uh, that was there and, and the other things of that, and he began to sprinkle it all around, desecrating the temple in Jerusalem. And instead, he set up a, a, an idol to Jupiter right in the temple. This is what he did. Antiochus desecrated, defiled the holy things. He persecuted the Jews. He sought to destroy them and their religion. And his action in the temple brought an end to the twice-daily sacrifice called the continual burnt offering. So exactly as the vision showed, history says this is what Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes did. He did this in the temple. It was predicted by Daniel, but it was, it was only predicted that it would take place. The sacrifices would end for a particular period of time. Look at verses 13 and 14. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people? And he said to me, It'll take 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be re-consecrated. So again, how long? This is the question, how long? We don't know who's, answer, who's asking this question. It seems in the vision that there's another who's asking this question. Perhaps it's the people that, that, that are there. How long? Perhaps it's, it's in there. How long will this happen? And, 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 and they wanted to know. And eventually it says Antiochus will not have his way. He will be taken care of. Eventually he will be taken care of. And eventually there will be a reconsecration of the temple. This will happen eventually. In his commentary, uh, Layman Strauss points points out, Daniel, uh, or Layman Strauss points out this, the literal expression for days is evenings and mornings. This is about the sacrifices, the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice. So the most feasible and simplest interpretation is that this is about the 2300 days is a literal about 24 hour period of time. It means that there will be 2,300 repetitions of evening and morning sacrifices, beginning in the evening and morning sacrifices that will not take place during this time because of the desecration, because of the pollution. They've been polluted at the hands of the little horn. 
Now, the established date for the restoration that actually took place in the temple, so history, historically, when the temple was restored, the actual date is December 14th, uh, 164 B.C., 164 B.C. before Christ. If we go back from that 2,300 days, we arrive at the fall of 170 B.C., which is the date that was the beginning of Antiochus' oppression of the Jews. And what's amazing is, is, is that 164 BC, even after two years of fighting, if you know anything about the Maccabees, anybody heard of the Maccabees? The Maccabees. The Maccabean revolt for two years began to fight and try to take back Jerusalem and try to take back the temple. And after two years, they finally gained control back once again. And they recaptured the temple and they cleansed it from the abomination of desolation. They began to cleanse it and they began to reconsecrate it exactly in the period of time that Daniel's vision 200 plus years before had predicted would happen. They, they came in, and according to Jewish legend, as they were, I love this part. If you're Jewish, you already know this story. As they were lighting the lamps, they came upon a, a flask of oil, and they said, well, we have enough oil for about one day to light the menorah, to light the lamp. And they lit the, day, they lit the, the oil with that small uh, flask of oil, and according to legend, that one flask of oil lasted not one, but eight days. Eight days. Eight days. So what do you have? The Jewish celebration, deliverance of the temple's rededication, the feast of dedication or Hanukkah. So you get a little bit of Christmas and we're almost, we're, we're almost in July. So I could almost say Christmas in July. Hanukkah, not really Christmas, right? Hanukkah in July. There we go. Hanukkah in August. It's a word of dedication that is still celebrated today. But it's connected to this prophecy. It's connected to these things. Now we might think that that was the end of the matter. Daniel prophesied in great detail. History proved itself out. Except that if we took the words given by the angel later on. Now I read them earlier but I saved this one to the end. Because this one in the end doesn't seem to match up with just Antiochus. It doesn't match up with Antiochus Epiphanes. There seems to be a little more that happens here if we look at these words, a future fulfillment. So look at verse 17. We're going to look at verse 17, then we'll skip to verse 19. Daniel chapter 8. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Verse 19. He said, behold... I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. So the time of the end, the appointed time of the end. Now you may say, well, well, pastor, certainly the end. I mean, it could have been the end. You know, hey, at the, at the end of the kingdoms, right? At the end of the king, Antiochus. See, this is still fulfilled in Antiochus, right? It's still fulfilled except that we know that the, the, the reconsecration and the, and the dedication, we know that that happened. Historically, we know that that happened. Not only historically, but biblically, we know that that happened. Because in John 10, 22, Jesus shows up at the feast of dedication the feast of dedication Jesus shows up at the feast of dedication in, in John 10 22 well okay so that already happened well that doesn't prove anything except that in Matthew 24 15 and 16 
Matthew 24, 15, and 16, this is Jesus. And Jesus makes this declaration. And he's talking about end time things in Matthew 24. If you read through Matthew 24, he's talking about end time things. And this is what Jesus says. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand that those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Wait a minute, I thought that already took place. Jesus says, no, there's a future fulfillment that is coming. No, that hasn't been completed. There's a future fulfillment that is coming. Clearly, one part of the prophecy was fulfilled, as we know, by Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. But there is another part of this. There is a, a future part of this that, that, that is to come, an imperfect shadow of what we see in Scripture and a perfect fulfillment of what is to come. And we take a turn from fulfilled prophecy in history, we can begin to look at what is coming. What is coming? So let's take a look. Daniel 8, 23 through 26, because this is specifically dealing with the part of the vision that is still yet to come and the latter end of their kingdom when the transgressors have reached their limit a king of bold face one who understands riddles shall arise his power shall be great but not by his own power and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without more warning, he shall destroy many, and shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. In his book, Cashless, Mark Hitchcock writes this, there are more than 100 passages of Scripture that describe the Antichrist. God doesn't want us to be preoccupied with this individual in an unhealthy, unbalanced way. But clearly God wants us to know about some things about the coming, this coming of the Prince of Darkness. So Antiochus Epiphanes is the precursor to the Antichrist. He is the shadow of what is seen in this vision of the Antichrist that we see throughout Scripture more than 100 times that is to come. I want to just give a couple, eight characteristics very quickly. We're just going to go through them that we see in this passage and others of the Antichrist. What will the Antichrist be like? Again, my, my hope is never to preach on the Antichrist. And we're going, to, we're going to wrap it up at the end by bringing it. What do we do with this? What do we do with these things? What do we do with this? If we're shocked, if we're in awe, what do we, what do, we do with this? But I want, to, I want to give you some characteristics real quick as we go through. First, he'll be a dynamic. He'll be dynamic in his personality. He's going to be dynamic in his personality. In fact, Daniel 8, 23, in the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked... A fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue will arise. A bold king of bold face, a king of fierce will arise. He, he'll be a, a good-looking countenance, a, a master of intrigue. Last week in Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation 3, we, we learned that he's also a gifted communicator. Daniel 7, 8, he has the mouth speaking great things. Daniel 7, 20, a mouth that spoke great things. Revelation 13, 5, he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. Friends, I'm going to tell you that the Antichrist will be silver-tongued. 
He will have the ability to be able to persuade in the way that he talks, in the way that he shares. He will be able to, to capture attention and draw people in. He will have a dynamic, charismatic personality that literally will begin to capture the world, the world's attention. Secondly, he will be demonic in his programming. He'll be demonic in his program. Daniel 8, 23 says he's a master of intrigue, but the new T King James Version describes him as one who understands sinister schemes. And what this means is, is through this demonic power and demonic influence, he will be able to solve some of these complex problems and schemes and some of these things. He's going to come at them from a, a problem-solving kind of a way that will get everybody's attention and go, wow, not only is this guy a good speaker and communicator and charismatic personality, but he can fix the world. He's got the answer the world needs. How many of you know we have a broken world right now? And there are a whole lot of problems. And you get a charismatic personality that comes in and they have the answers of how to fix it and they begin to sweep people up. His power, he will be devilish in his power. Again, Daniel 8, 24, he will become very strong but not by his own power. His power will not come from him. His power will be demonic, devilish. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. This is Paul writing about the Antichrist. Revelation 13, 2, John, the apostle John writing in what he saw in his vision, the beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, mouth like that of a lion. The dragon, which represents Satan, gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. So we're, we're talking about Satan, satanic power being given to the Antichrist. Fourthly, he'll be destructive in persecution. So like Antiochus, Epiphanes was very, very heavy in persecution of the Jews. So the Antichrist will be very heavy in his persecution of the Jewish people, breaking his covenant with them. Very, very destructive, very heavy in his persecution of the Jews and those who follow, follow Jesus Christ. His holy people. Daniel 8, 24, he will cause abounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. Great persecution. We see it in Revelation 13, 7 as well, that he's given this season in which to carry out these things. It seems like he is succeeding and people will say, God, where are you in your power? Why are you letting these things happen? Because prophecy says that it will be a season of time when the Antichrist will rule, will persecute. There will be heaviness that comes and great destruction and desolation that comes. And it will be allowed by God for a season of time. Revelation 13, 7. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation worldwide. Ethnos, every ethnic, not just nation, every ethnicity. Number five, he will be deceitful in his practices. In other words, he will cause deceit to prosper. Eight, or Daniel 8.25, again, like Satan who's the father of lies, so shall the Antichrist be a master of deception. Paul describes the Antichrist in greater detail. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. 
He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all of the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. Deception. Number six, he'll be defiant in his profession. In Daniel 8.25, he will consider himself superior. And when they feel secure, he'll destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. So just like Antiochus Epiphanes called himself God manifest, I am God, God manifest. So the Antichrist will say, I am Christ of another, I am Christ, and and will deceive many into believing that he is God-like, that he is deity, that he is Messiah. Paul affirms this as well, that he will claim himself to be God. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, he'll oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God and his worship. So he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. He will make audacious claims that he is God. But it won't happen right away. He'll deceive and he'll use signs and wonders and demonic power. And then eventually he'll come out and say, that's because I am God. That's because I am Christ. I am Messiah. The Antichrist. But he'll be defeated in purpose. (laughs) What was his purpose? His purpose is to destroy. Daniel 8.25, yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. Antiochus was destroyed, but human power came in. The Antichrist will be destroyed in the end when Christ and his church come back riding on a white horse. When they return, he will be, he he will bring the entire earth. His purpose of bringing the entire earth under demonic control will be, will, will, will not happen, will not take place. Number eight, he'll be destined to punishment. We talked about this last week. Daniel 7, 11, I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown in the blazing fire. Revelation nineteen twenty. but the beast was captured and with it the false prophet and, uh, who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshiped his image and the two of them were thrown alive in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. He'll be destroyed. In the end, he'll be destroyed. In the end, his, his reign will end. There'll be a season where it seems like he's prevailing, but in the end, he will not win and he will be destroyed. So what do we take away from all of these things? Well, let's read the last verse of Daniel chapter eight. I'm getting ready to land the plane. Daniel eight twenty seven. I, Daniel, was worn out, <laughs> I would say. I lay exhausted for several days and I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision It was beyond understanding. Daniel was in shock. What does this mean? And what does this mean for my people? After all, I know what it's like to be in exile. I know what it's like to have another nation come in, Nebuchadnezzar come in and destroy the things that I love and destroy the city that I love and destroy the temple that I love and take away the things and, and, and take us back. I know what that's like, but what it's, what's it going to be like for my people? What's that going to be like for those that I love? What's it going to be like? And he lay sick and he lay exhausted as he considered the vision. He was in shock. So what do we do with prophecies like this? Let me just close by giving three quick takeaways. Three quick takeaways. What do we do with this? What do we do with this prophecy? How do we, how do we react? Well, I think prophecies like this, number one, they give us greater confidence in God. Why do I say that? 
Because in great detail, Daniel's prophecy and vision that was 200 plus years before it actually happened in great detail was fulfilled by history. And that gives us the confidence that God's word is true, that we can trust his word, that what God says he will fulfill. We may not understand it in the moment. We may not be able to put all the pieces together. And how does this fit? And how does this fit? And how will this come together? We may not be able to get that figured out, but I can tell you that because of the prophecy and the history that has been fulfilled, it gives us a confidence that God's word will come to pass. It will come to pass. That what God says will come to pass. We can be confident in those things. And if what God said would happen came to be with Antiochus Epiphanes, but yet Jesus says there's yet another desolation, there's another one like him that is coming, then we ought to take it very seriously. That if God's word has been fulfilled to this point, we can bet that it is not a fairy tale. It's not a Disney animation. It will be fulfilled. There will be an Antichrist that will come. Secondly, knowing that, it ought to bring in us a cleanness of lifestyle, holiness. Get ready. What do we do? What do these kind of things tell us? They tell us as the church to be prepared because God said in his word, no man knows the day or the hour. We don't know when these things will take place and we don't know when Christ shall come. All we have control of is whether we will walk in holiness and, cleanse, and, and in cleanness. We ought to walk in that same thing. In the, in the return of Jesus Christ coming soon, it ought to cause us to want to prepare ourselves. Dwight Eisenhower, during his term as president, he was vacationing in Denver and he learned of a, a little six-year-old boy by the name of Paul Haley who was dying of cancer. And so he arranged it that he wanted while he was on this trip to stop by uh, Haley's house and, 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 and visit him. Haley really admired the president. He found out about it, that he admired the president. So he said, you know, let's stop by and make a visit while we're here. And so he arranged in his limo to pull up to the house. And he himself, it probably wouldn't happen today, but he himself actually got out of the car. And he went and he, he knocked on the door. And uh, unannounced. And he was greeted by Paul's stunned father, Donald Haley, who was unshaved and dressed in old jeans and a dirty shirt. The visit afterwards was talked about by everybody in the neighborhood. Everybody was excited that the president would, would pay a visit to one of their neighbors. Everybody except Paul Haley's dad, Don, who said this, How could I ever forget standing there dressed like I was in those jeans and old dirty shirt and unshaven face to meet the president of the United States? Donald wasn't prepared. Now you can say, well, he didn't know he was coming. Friends, we know that Jesus is coming. We just don't know when. The question is, will we be prepared? Will we be prepared for his coming? Thirdly, this ought to be a conviction of service. Daniel eight twenty seven. Daniel got up after he was in shock and sick for a couple days. Finally, you know what he did? He got up and he went about the king's business. Friends, we can focus on this 
and, and wonder, when's the end times coming? Who's the Antichrist? Is it coming? Is it that? Is it this? Is it this conspiracy theory? Is it this? Is it this person? Is it that person? We can get all sick and we can get all nervous about it. But the bottom line is, what Daniel did is what we need to do. We need to occupy until he comes. We need to get up and be about the king's business. There are people that need to know that Jesus Christ is coming. There are people that need to know that judgment is coming. That there is an end times that is coming. But there is a hope, there is a peace, there is a gospel of salvation. And it is up to us, the church, to go and make disciples and be about the king's business. Be about the king's business. Some of us have been too focused on our own business. Too focused on worrying about all of these other things. And not focused enough on the king's business. I don't know about you, but I want to be ready and go about the king's business. Oh, friends, both fulfilled prophecy and prophecy that is yet to come ought to motivate us to serve the king. Because I don't know about you, when I stand before the Lord, I, I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't want to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Both of those are in scripture. So my challenge is, let us get shocked first. And let us be astonished by the potential future that we have and let's go out and let's share that hope with others who need Jesus let's share the hope with others who need Jesus let's examine ourselves and live ready for his return let's bow our heads thank you Jesus thank you Jesus perhaps you're here today and this talk about the end times and the antichrist and all of these kinds of things, you'd say, you know what, but pastor, I don't feel ready. I don't know that I'm ready if Jesus should return. I don't know that I'm ready. Today, you can be ready. Today, you can be ready. As we did in communion, you can, you can receive Christ's forgiveness today. You can put your hope in him for salvation and for his forgiveness today. You, you can be ready for his return today and if that's you if you say you know what I need to place my faith in Jesus I don't know if I'm ready but today today I want to place my faith in Jesus today will you slip up your hand today I want to lead you in a saving in the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ a prayer of confession anybody at all I need to give my life to Jesus today yeah hallelujah 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 secondly if you say you know there's some things in my life holiness and cleanness of living and you know I haven't been living the way that I should I feel convicted today will you just will you just ask the Lord to forgive you today will you just begin to right now do business with God and ask him to show you areas in your life where you're not living the way you're supposed to let's let this time be a time of conviction and allow the Holy Spirit to bring about some holiness in us today and humility in us today so that we're ready for his return Father we thank you today and I thank you Lord for those that that said, you know, I don't know that I'm ready. God, today we ask you to forgive us of our sin today. We ask you to cleanse us today. We ask you to come into our lives and to give us a new heart. Replace our heart of stone. We invite you, Jesus, into our lives. We ask you to save us and to make us right with you. We need your righteousness place our faith in you today we thank you for your forgiveness and grace 
for the confidence that we have in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We pray that you're encouraged by this message. For more information about Painesville Assembly of God, visit PainesvilleAG.com.